We are continuing today looking at a list of what we have described in the past of acceptable, with air quotes around them, sins. There are many sins in the Christian life that you don't even have to be a Christian to know that they're bad, they're embarrassing. They're the sorts of things that if you were to do them and someone found out about it, you'd be deeply embarrassed. If you're a politician or a country music star or an athlete, you might have to get on TV and reluctantly apologize or at least send some sort of authoritative tweet about it. Those are impolite sins that everybody sort of agrees. They're embarrassing. They're not going to get you ahead in the world. But there are other sins, the more dangerous ones, that we're calling acceptable, the kind that actually can help us to get on in the world, the kind that can get right in the middle of our spiritual lives and keep God at bay, make us think we're better than others, cause division and unreconciled relationships in our midst. The one we're going to speak about today is the politest of all, really. It's the sin of pride. And as we focus on what James says here, we're going to look more at the end than at the beginning. He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Let these words wash over you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Pride is what most spiritual writers would say. That sin that embeds in the core of who we are and who we, as people born with an allergy to God, and makes us in competition with God, makes us in competition with other people. We rarely see it in ourselves, but we hate it when we see it in others. There's a commercial that some of you have seen on the Medusa box. That's what one of our professors called television. I think that's a nice thing. You watch it, you become stone. There, you become, you are turned to stone, I should say. (laughs) But there's a commercial, a Windex commercial, where these black crows are in the backyard of a male doofus, which is the only way that males are depicted on television these days. And they say, hey, watch this, the guy's sitting out on his patio, They go around the house and they ring the doorbell. The man hears the doorbell, has to go through the house, through a sliding glass door, to check the front door. Whereupon he finds there is no one. These clever crows, you may have these in your house, have, in the meantime, closed the screen door, which Doofus Male's wife has made exceedingly clean with Windex. And he starts to walk right back out the house. And as some of you have done, or at least have seen someone else do, this man smacks right into the screen door because it is so clean he cannot see it. And the crows fall out laughing. (laughs) Because, you know, birds do this sort of thing. And they got the doofus male. 
It seems to me that pride is something like that. This clear glass on our lives that keeps us from other people, keeps us from God, and we never see it. We do smash into it sometimes, but God has a vested interest in making us see it. Satan has a vested interest in making sure we never do. That we only see the pride in other people. And so as we look at this today, I want you to consider these three verbs as James lays it out. Submit, resist, and come. First of all, submit. The places where pride presents itself in your life, you'll find yourself unable to submit to others. And the remedy of that is God saying here, submit yourselves to God. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. There is a kind of way of being when we are proud that makes us unable to admit that we're wrong. It makes us unable to prefer the wishes or the desires of anyone else. That makes us unteachable. That makes us uncorrectable. And it's always a great danger. In fact, one of the things that in screw tape letters the senior devil says to this junior devil when he is trying to trip up his patient, he says, if you can't keep him from church, and it looks like you're not going to be able to, at the very least, get him hopping around churches. And when he goes into these churches, make him the critic where the enemy means for him to be the pupil. In other words, when he goes to church, let him go there and stand in judgment of the person sitting next to them and the way they sing or the way they smell or the way they give or don't give. Let them stand in judgment on the worship style. Let them stand in judgment on the preacher. Because if they do that, they will be untouchable. There will be glass between them. If they humble themselves and become the pupil, there's no telling in that submissive state what might happen to them. And you realize that nearly every part of your life This is the case. That's why the Bible is always saying that the the outworking of Jesus tampering with you is that you're going to become a submissive person. Peter can say, become submissive to, for the Lord's sake, every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or to President Obama or to governor. It doesn't say President Obama, but that's what it means for us. It's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are nice and give you lots of vacation time, but also to those who are harsh. The Bible is never worried about you getting your way. I know that's frustrating. But you're most open to receiving from God to being changed by others, to having a life of fullness when you do not have to be tyrannically ruled by getting your own way. And the only way that happens is by the humility that issues in submitting to other people. There is a Russian novel that I have had the great privilege of beginning six or seven times called Brothers Karamazov. I have also had the privilege of completing it zero times. 
But in those first six or seven starts, I noticed this very foreign description. It's foreign because it's so uncool, inaccessible to our way of thinking. But it's a a description of these young men who would come into the monastery in the Russian Orthodox Church. And the way that they would cultivate a spiritual life is they would, as a novice, they would have an elder. And to that elder, they would submit themselves entirely. And here's why. In order that they could learn the freedom that comes from perfect submission. Now, that doesn't sound like anything good to us. We're a people who are taught, who are trained, and even in our spiritual lives think we must assert ourselves. We must make sure we're not getting our rights trampled on, that no one is taking advantage of us. And yet we're told, submit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands, children to your parents, everybody to everybody else, slaves to masters, people of God to the governing authorities. Why are they not worried about us losing our rights? Because nobody who's fighting for their rights is in a position to be able to receive from God. The dude, Richard Foster, who wrote Celebration of Discipline, he talks about all the various disciplines in our lives, the internal ones and the external ones, the ones that are meant to be sort of scaffolding that build up the Christian life, that all of these disciplines are practiced with the ultimate view of giving us some sort of freedom. That's why you pray, and that's why you read the scriptures, that's why you fast, that's why you worship. And he talks about the discipline of submission. And he says this curious thing. He says, what freedom corresponds with the discipline of submission? Because it doesn't feel like anything good could come from us submitting to somebody else. It feels a lot better for us to assume that we're right, others are wrong. We don't have to do what anybody else tells us to do. And here's what he says. The freedom that corresponds with submission is this. The freedom of never, of not having to get your own way. That's the freedom. And some of you who are older have learned to lean into that. It is an enormous burden if you wake up in the morning and are ruled by a great need to control what everyone around you is doing, to make sure that everyone around you is pleasing you, that the weather and your finances and your job and your spouse and your children are doing everything they can to make sure that things work out for you the way they need to work out for you. It's very wearisome, so I have read. But, you know what's freeing? It's freeing to be able to wake up in the morning and know that no matter what happens, because I am submitted to a benevolent God who is upholding me, who is superintending all my affairs, I don't have to control everything. I don't have to get my own way. I can keep loving my doofus male husband or the correlated wife. I can keep doing that whether they do what I need them to or not because I'm submitted to God. I don't have to pick my own path. I can submit to mean bosses. I can submit to unsatisfying work. 
I can do all of these things because I belong to God and I don't have to have my own way. Humility says I don't have to have my own way. And it's very freeing because that's the place where you get most showered with God's grace. Submit. Submit yourselves then to God, he says. And next he says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I'm going to tell you a way that you can resist the devil that you don't normally think about. Because see, most of the ways that the devil will impact your life are not like in the movie The Exorcist. It won't be in terrifying ways. It won't be in obvious ways. It'll be in subtle ways. In fact, it'll be in spiritual ways. You realize James is urging humility and submission and resisting of the devil to people who belong to God. He's writing believers in Jesus. He's writing to people who are wanting to kill and covet each other, who are in fights, who are judging each other, slandering each other, boastful about the future. They've got problems. He says, resist the devil. Let me tell you some of the ways that for religious people like us, that we need to resist the devil. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, look at your spiritual life. Anytime your spiritual practices, anytime your relationship with God begins to make you feel better than someone else, you are being acted upon, not by God, but by the devil. Anytime your religious life your relationship with God, your spiritual practices, the insights that you have, the passion that you've been given, the fidelity that you maintain, makes you start to think that you're better than other people, you can be sure that that is not God. That's the devil. Now I'm going to give you some examples here just so you can sort of get the feel, get loosened up. little devil fighting calisthenics here. Let's say we just a minute ago, we did the offering here. There are people in here who give. That plate comes around, they put their check in. And then they watch. And they snort. And they notice when someone else doesn't give. And they see. Because they know they're the righteous ones. And they are filled with contempt. What's wrong with you? There are other people in the same act. Did I just scare a child? Sorry. I am really sorry. I'm just playing around. It's not the devil. I don't think. There are other people during the same exact action who don't give. And they look at people that do. You think you're better than me, don't you? You're so smug. The same action has got both sets of people Assuming the worst about one another, making comparisons, feeling better than God's nowhere near. Some of you feel on a Sunday morning, you have moments where you, because you go to church every week, and you know people that only go to church once every month. Sometimes they go once every two months, and you pass them, they're going to the golf club. And it's a pretty day, and you're stuck in here doing this lame thing, listening to an overweight guy tell you dumb stories. And you're saying, I could be taking a nap. I could be reading the paper. I could be playing golf. You feel resentful. But I'm going to go once. I'm at church. 
And you're mad at them because they're not at church. Your spiritual life's making you feel better than somebody else. You're being acted on by the devil. It happens with our children, with our practices. I've caught myself in some of my worst moments of parenting when my pride seeps out and I will let my children have it for something they're doing and I'll say, we are not going to be like those other kids. I'm embarrassed to say that. But you know what that is? It's pure devil pride. We young boys are better than that. Anytime you appeal to being the better person, the better family, that ain't God. That's what the devil does. He creates division. He creates second guessing. He creates motive analyzation. He makes you act like God. It happens all over the place. There are people in here who have got a hunger for caring for the poor. And there are people in here who don't give a flip about caring for the poor. And I guarantee you this, a lot of the people who care about the poor, they are eaten up with anger towards those who won't do anything about it. And they're being acted upon, even though they're caring about a good thing. They're being acted on by the devil and not by God. Some of you have gotten some kind of spiritual insight. You have, you have understood the doctrines of grace in some kind of new and fresh way. And in ironies of irony, you have become the judge of everyone who doesn't understand God's grace as well as you do. God's grace, you know, this theoretical thing that we believe in that says we're worthless, we don't deserve anything, and when we deserve at least, God gives us most. That we don't know our right hand from our left hand, and yet God summons us and drenches us with His affection and makes us have an interest in Him. And people who can be the recipient of that, at the very same time, we can start getting mad at everybody else who doesn't get it. And we're being acted on by the devil and not by God. There's all kinds of ways in the spiritual life this can happen. Paul Miller tells a story. He wrote A Praying Life. One morning I was praying in my daughter's room and I heard a vo- audible, an audible voice saying, Paul, I want you to build a new kitchen for your wife. Later he left the room and his wife said, Did God speak to you this morning, Paul? Anything about a kitchen? His wife said it. She was the audible voice. And he says, one of the things that Christians do is they let their intuition, they elevate it to the level of God's Word. God tells you something in private. And then you start to judge everybody else who doesn't think the same thing. And you're unteachable. You say, God has told me I need to leave my wife. Because there's a lot prettier girl at work. And you say, but that's not what God's word says. But God told me. Now that's a ridiculous example. There are a lot of examples that aren't as ridiculous. Where you think God told you something and nobody can speak to you. You won't submit to anyone because you think, I am an infallible interpreter of God's direct revelation to me and no one else gets it. And you're being acted on, I think, by the devil and not by God. You can be sure that any time 
that you're involved in activities that make you look down on other people. You are in dangerous condition and you're called upon to resist the devil. Some of us unwittingly, we actually have made plans, or maybe not plans, you've made plans to systematically look down on people. You listen to angry conservative people on TV or on radio and that's all you read. And all they do is look down on other people. Or you listen to liberal people, and all they do is look down on conservatives. And you're drinking in hatred. Resist the devil. Resist anything that makes you hate those immigrants. Those illegal aliens. Oh, if you find yourself hating a group of people, and therefore thinking you're better, you're being acted on by the devil and not by God. Welfare recipients, the rich, the poor, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whites, whatever it is. Whenever you find yourself, have I made my point clear? Looking down on someone else, you're being acted on by the devil and not by God. And it is cause to resist the devil, to say, I am in danger This is not God's stuff. So what do I need to do? Come near to God. And He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn well. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. See, the thing to do when we start to realize, boy... I got a lot of judgment and contempt in my heart at other people. People who don't share my passion for the Lord. People who don't share my convictions about homeschooling or Christian schooling or public schooling or whatever your conviction is. I have a lot of contempt in my heart for people who don't think it like I do. I am being called to resist the devil in this. What do I do? And it's really simple. This is what we do over and over again. And I told you last week and we'll tell you next week and we told you the week before that. When you start to realize a sin in your life, when you start to realize a tendency in your life, the awesome thing is, the way out is not to defend yourself. The way out is to come to God and say, have mercy on me. I can't believe what kind of guy I am. I can't believe the kind of thoughts that run across my heart. Oh, Christ, have mercy on me. Come near to God and He will come near to you. You know what I think? I don't think this alone. Other people have said this, but some of you, using this metaphor of the the glass, some of you have sins, embarrassing sins in your life that you can't shake. You've prayed and prayed and you can't shake them. You've got a crummy marriage. You've got a lot of anxiety. You've got some addiction to something or another. And it's very impolite. And you think, if I could just get rid of this, I would be good. I'd be better. Everything would be fine. And you can't get rid of it. And you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and God won't let you out. I think for some of you, those impolite sins are like smudge marks on the glass. Where God's saying, hey, 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 hey. You think your main problem is gambling addiction? You think your main problem is pornography? You think your main problem is that your husband doesn't love you right? No. No. That's not your main problem. Your main problem is that you're a perennial stiff armor to God. 
is that you won't receive God's grace. You won't humble yourself. Your main problem is pride at the core of our lives. And so sometimes God lets these embarrassing things be the entrance point, the gateway to us experiencing Him more fully. Because you cannot be proud when some sin is eating your lunch. You can't act independent of God when your life is working in such a way, your, your marriage is so dissatisfying, your work is so dissatisfying, your financial life is so abysmal that you know you need God. God likes that. He says, come. Come near to God and He'll come near to you. The Bible says that kind of stuff all over the place. See, God is not proud. God doesn't hold us in contempt. He knows our faith is flimsy. He knows that we're self-righteous. He knows that we're stingy. He knows that we have a hard time loving people. He knows that we like to be critics. And he says, come. Jesus said it this way. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And James says, come near to God and He will come near to you. That is good news. The other night we were with a gathering of people. There were lots of children there. And one of the words of a small child to his mother and his fragility reminded me of our children when they were young. And one of them, when tired and needy, would stand before us and they would say, Hold you, me! Hold you, me. And we would say, You silly kid, get your grammar right. No, we would not say that. We did like you. We went, Oh. And we scooped them up. We didn't say, You idiot, you can't talk good. <laughs> they said, Hold you, me. And our hearts were moved with compassion. And we said, Okay. You didn't even have to ask. I don't care if you get the words right. I don't care if you know how to formulate it all right. See, there's a kind of humility in a child that knows their dependence, that knows their need, that says to a parent, hold me, hold you, me. Whatever they say, they're saying, I need you to repair what's wrong with me. The proud person don't need nobody. And won't ever hold out his arms and say, hold you me to God. He won't ever come to Christ. She won't ever come to Christ. But when you recognize yourself to have these tendencies where you're being acted on by the devil and called to resist the devil, the thing you're to do is to resist the devil and then run to this Savior who said, whoever comes to me, I'll never turn away. And some of you are too sophisticated for that. There's a kind of Cool cynicism that invades all you young guys with skinny jeans and hooded sweatshirts and little glasses. And you... I don't, I don't have anybody else in mind. I'm just making up something. But you know what? It's kind of cool to you. It's a, it's, a, it's a hidden kind of pride from you that keeps you from coming to God because you think, oh, that stuff... And you judge it by mocking it. You don't realize it, but you're keeping things at an arm's length by just saying, that's silly. Nobody could really believe that stuff. And anything you can mock, you can keep safe distance from. 
And it's just an insidious form of pride. It's just a way of you protecting yourself. People that protect themselves prohibit themselves from the God who means to change them and remake them and enliven them. And so he says, Come near to God and He will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. You realize, don't you, that we're a people who believe that the cross of our Savior is a leveler. It means no matter how tall or short or how good or bad you think you are, the Savior had to die that we could be made sons and daughters. And the only way to receive from Him is open-handedly and humility. And if you make a habit of receiving from Him like that and coming to Him when you realize your sin, you know what will happen? You won't be able to judge people anymore. See, you judge people when you're looking to justify yourself. When you start to realize that God has not judged you, you start serving people. You start filtering your view with a lens of mercy because you've received much mercy. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. The invitation is always open. Amen.